Even in the worst of human conditions, sometimes a miracle happens. For Serge Kreisberger, it was a series of miracles that he credits for helping him survive the Holocaust as a child in Romania. He told Andrew McRae his story on the latest episode of The Scenic Route. I was born in the town of Chanauti, which when I was born was part of Romania in 1928. And before that, before 1918, that town was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So therefore, the mother language really that most people spoke to was German. Okay. Now, the Holocaust, when you, in, in general, when people talk about the Holocaust, you think we are talking about six million Jews that were killed. But in reality, a million, there were a lot more people killed by, uh, by Hitler's murderous rampage. A million gypsies were killed. Probably between two and three million Christians were killed, simply Christians that, and, and ma- mainly, uh, people from the clergy in, in, in all over Europe because they basically gave their allegiance to their faith ahead of their allegiance to, to Hitler. And Hitler could not, and when you're a, dic- a dictator, cannot accept anybody giving their allegiance to anything else but, but himself. When, uh, when I was born in 28, till in the early 30s, uh, I used to spend my, uh, I was the first grandchild. My, pa- my grandparents were farmers in, in a village. We lived in a city, which is the city of Sanoti. They lived about 20 miles away and were farmers because that's basically what the whole countryside was. They lived in a village of uh, about 600 people and uh, 600 families out of these probably 300 and something were Jewish families the others were Ukrainian Polish Romanian families and so was the city the city of Chernoti was one a, one a great center of Jewish learning they were out of 140,000 people probably uh, 50,000 were Jews and the other 90,000 were uh, basically made up of people from Poland, from Ukraine, from Ger- actually German descent, uh, Russian descent. There was a mixture of, uh, in Romanian. Um, life was quite pleasant. My father were, had a small uh, textile factory, and that will come into play later in, in, in some what I would call miracles that happened in the in the, in the uh, on the way to survival, uh, how one survived during the, this Holocaust. Uh, so, in in when when Hitler came to power in '33, and uh, and things in Germany became quite more difficult for Jews and for anybody who really didn't uh, well, obey, so to speak, the uh, the Nazi party. Uh, uh, Life and 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 so forth, uh, but we really didn't feel that yet in Romania at at all. They they came some right wing, uh, very right wing or, or Nazi sympathizer government came to power, but the, there was still a monarchy under King Carol, and he kept things sort of in a calm, uh, basically calm. Uh, obviously, in in 1937. Uh, came the Nuremberg Laws. 
the Nuremberg Clause basically in in Germany uh, basically said Jews cannot be lawyers, Jews cannot be professors in college in schools, Jews cannot be doctors, Jews cannot participate in in, in the normal life, and uh, of um, and that's when many uh, Jews left Germany because they still they gave him the opportunity to to leave Germany, and uh, slowly these kind of laws started to trickle down all over Europe where sympathizers of the Nazi uh, regimes uh, started to institute some of those laws, like you had to stay open. People that wanted to obey their Sabbath couldn't. They had to keep the store open or or go to work in the factory or or, and so forth. So um, that is the kind of uh, things started to get more difficult in the late 30s. Then, as you know from history, there came the pact between uh, Molotov and Ribbentrop, where the Germans and the Russians agreed to take Poland and divide it up. The Russians took the eastern part of Poland, Germany took the western part of Poland, then they left a little sliver in the middle with Warsaw, the capital. and, And at that time, just about a month or two later, the Russians came in an agreement with Germany because they basically were the powers in Europe. They agreed to to give Russia um, three countries, Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia were occupied in 1939 by, by the Russians. And among the, in addition to those three, they also got that province where the town of Chernoti was located. So in 1939, I became, I, f- so to speak, fell under the, uh, the uh, into, into, into the Russian uh, domination of the Russian communist, uh, so under the Soviet Union, under Stalin. Now, when we're talking about the Holocaust, we're talking about Hitler, and that's true. But dictators are dictators, and Stalin was in no way, he didn't go specifically to the point of saying, I will eliminate Jews or, or gypsies or, or people that have handicaps or whatever, but he basically, would, he tried, he basically was a dictator, and, um, and life became very, very difficult. Under the um, when the Russians came in, and at that time, so to speak, the first miracle happened to to me and my family. On the in the apartment where we on uh, the building where we lived, there were two apartments on the first floor. We had one, and a Romanian uh, captain or major in the army. I was only nine years old. I don't really know. A Romanian had the other apartment. When the Russians came in all the army and so forth. Obviously, he overnight, this all happened in a 24-hour period when the Russians moved in and the Romanians moved out. So overnight, he vacated the apartment. Trucks came in and he vacated because he was an officer in the Romanian army. So he went to Romania. And the local population just stayed and waited. And the next or the same evening after the... 
the the Romanian left, a uh, a car came with a woman. It was a Russian woman with two young children, and they are and they came and to move into that apartment. We had no idea who they were, but they. My mother saw here's a woman with with two young children. Was uh, they only came with a suitcase or whatever? So she gave them uh, pillows and covers and tried and some and food and tried, you know, to be just neighborly because here was somebody with two little children. Well, that evening, the husband arrived, and we found out that he was a colonel in the NKVD, which is the their secret police. He was probably the top man in the in the in the city. And uh, he just came by and said thank you very much. And then trucks arrived with all kinds of stuff for them, and they got everything they needed. But and we just, you know, he lived across the hall from us. And and about a week or two weeks later, uh, an edict came out that everybody has to go to a police station to get a passport. And. We didn't know what that meant, so it meant, all right, there's a new country came in, they want everybody to have a different ID card than you had before. So we were going to go when we were scheduled. Just before we were scheduled, he, he, came, he came to our house and said, don't go when you're supposed to go, don't do anything. I will tell you when you're going to come down, you bring all the papers from all your close family, and you come down, and, and see me. I will meet you there at the headquarters, police headquarters. We did that. My father followed what he asked him to do, and we got all passports. We didn't know a passport. To us, a passport is a passport is a passport. So we really didn't know that. Well, in a dictatorship, a passport. All passports are not equal. So, about within a very short period of time, what uh, what happened that in the middle of the night. At two two o'clock in the morning, suddenly a whole street would be locked up by by police and so, and soldiers, and they knew exactly they were from they would go into a building and know exactly what apartment to go for, and they would t- give people exactly ten minutes to take a suitcase, and they brought you down, they put you in a truck, and you were gone, and they send the people to places or to Siberia. Or to coal mines in the in the uh, Donbas uh, in the Crimea and the Donbas area, and the majority of those people that were in the coal mines, they worked them to that. Nobody pretty much returned from Siberia. Some people actually survived that, and after the war, uh, started to trickle back. But maybe we i would say that out of the 40 or 45,000 Jews maybe 10,000 Jews were deported by the Russians how did they decide which they wanted okay, to deport here is the story we found out nobody came to us that passport told they told you you had to be part of the proletariat you had that pa- passport if you were middle class or you were upper middle class or you were part of the intelligentsia, or part of the intellectual elite, or you were part of the um, uh, religious elite. 
if you were uh, involved with, uh, with uh, very involved with your faith or whatever it is, you were a danger. Dictators do not want anybody who has the ability to uh, to, to be to to uh, to be a leader. So they basically just did. Now, what we realized after that that he made us all although my father was middle class he gave us papers that indicated we are part of a working class uh, of the proletariat good people that uh, that uh, love the communist system he and so we found out that my grandparents were not taken my uncles were not taken uh, that we really uh, basically were not touched anybody we were pretty scared, but uh, nobody came to us. And he did this just because you were neighbors. He that's liked. That's all. That's all. And that was the first miracle of of survival, because we could have been who knows where sent, and who would have survived. So that was the Russian. Then we went to school. You could not celebrate um, your holidays. You could not go to to synagogue. You could not go to church. Uh, Christians. There was a, it was very atheistic. I mean, they, you were going to. There was no more. They took the synagogues and made a, a movie theater out of it. It that's that's was uh, the under under communism, uh, and uh, people don't really realize that dictatorships by themselves are the 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 survival of a dictator is he cannot have anybody that can present any danger to himself. And that's why even in today's world, that's what happened in, in those countries that, uh, that have dictatorships. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we lived under the Russians for, t- for two years. Uh, it was, we all went to work. Uh, I used to, even although I was only 10 years, I went to school, and then after school I used to go to a place where I used to make signs, uh, like uh, work in a painting factory or whatever, something. And uh, everybody was working, and everybody was... uh, And that happened till in 1939, when from 39 to 41, when the Russians and the Germans were basically at peace, Meanwhile, in '39, obviously World War II started because Germany occupied that part of Poland that was uh, in World War II started. But he didn't—he uh, did not open the Second Front. He just at that time the war started with England and with France, and uh, and he uh, and Hitler occupied the rest of Europe. Uh, the real. Um, the real dangerous situation to the Jews started on that famous Kristallnacht, which was the night of the broken glass in October of 1930, in November, November of 1938, when when Hitler gave order to uh, for all the synagogues to be burned down in Germany. And people, and then when he and he opened the Dachau, the first concentration camp in Dachau. Um, but that was still 
the the atrocities or the people died in Dachau's people were were tortured and so forth a certain amount of people and it, it, they it weren't just Jews he did that to um, to um, any political enemies at the beginning but what is interesting that before that the first victims of his um, of his uh, basically uh, insane belief of creating a uh, a super race, so to speak, were actually Germans themselves. Because what he did is he felt that he wanted to create a very perfect race. So any German woman under the age of uh, 18 or 21, I don't remember which the case was, um, if they had any defect, be it um, physical or mental, they took and they sterilized them because they did not want to procreate. They felt they wanted to procreate only from genetically perfect specimens. And they had, there was actually a science that was developed at the time by the Nazis where they used to measure the, 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 uh, the spacing between your eyes, the, the, the width of your skull, and, and they, they looked for that perfect uh, specimen. And that, uh, that happened in, uh, till 1941. We lived in, and the war went on, but we were living there under the Russian occupation, and we really didn't have... Basically, life was in a normal way. We still used to go to my grandparents uh, in the summer, and I was their first grandchild, and they were, to me, the most important people in my life at the time. And um, and I used to play on the farm, work on the farm and the, with the cows and the... And, and, uh, you know, I was uh, seven, eight, nine years old. Then in 1941, when Hitler decided to attack Russia, that's when what happened very quickly, as you know, that uh, at that time the Germans advanced very quickly towards, uh, towards into Russia. And at that time he established six... Uh, what they call Zonderkommandos. That means groups of SS. These were his uh, secret police or whatever the that the in those black uniforms. And what they did as they advanced, those groups of the German army was told wherever they went into a town in Poland where there were three million Jews really living in Poland. And when they occupied, they t- they took these and they put everybody in ghettos. And then, as soon as the army progressed further, and these people were uh, were put in ghettos, then the these Sonder commanders came in, took them out, and basically were shooting people by the thousands. And the most uh, the the most known uh, places, Babi Yar, where he killed. They killed about thirty thousand Jews in two days. Where they brought him out from the from one of the uh, I don't know which ghetto it was, 
Krakow or whatever, and they that was in Belarus, and they uh, they took the they took them by the groups in groups of five or ten. They made them undress, go to the to the end of the ravine, and shot them. And they filled up, and then they covered up the ravine, and and few people were actually if came out uh, when they covered and left. They they were still alive when they so they came out. So anyway, they killed approximately in Russia approximately 1.2 million Jews that way. But they realized, the, the Germans realized that they could not continue basically eradicating all the Jews as they go along because that took a tremendous toll on the Germans themselves. I mean, when you have to shoot children and women and all day long, it just took a toll on the... And they said, we have to find, so to speak, a more humane way of killing the people. That would be more humane for their own, for their people. Now, that happened in general in Poland and all over. What happened to us, the, they came immediately. The Russians, the Russians went away. We were, in, uh, we were still in the town of Czarnowiecki, and the Germans came in. They came into the town, and they took about 200 of the most preeminent Jews, including the rabbi and the chief rabbi and, 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 uh, and many of the other dignitaries, took them down to the river, which was the River Prut, shot those 200 people, they they buried them in a mass grave, and and they left. And the Romanians came in because that was part of Romania before. Now Romania became an ally of Germany, which probably was the, the to some extent the biggest luck of of the Jews because the the Germans really were not there to to come and and and, and kill because they didn't occupy Romania. While they occupied the rest of Europe, Romania was an ally. So Romania came in and occupied. Now, when we did not know what was happening, we didn't even know, but we found out later that these 200 people were taken down and killed. But what happened in our building, um, a Romanian civilian, we don't know what he was, a police or whatever, came with a few soldiers they came and went from apartment to apartment and uh, basically tried to take whatever they could. And my father actually had the foresight. He knew their, how the Romanians, to some extent, were, were going to react. So he put a, my mother's diamond engagement ring right in front in a cupboard. So the moment they will open something, they will see it. So the guy that was the civilian, as soon as he saw the ring, he took the ring and did, probably didn't want to share it with the rest of the group. So he said, oh, there's nothing here, let's go. And he left. And we closed the door. And just a little while later, a, there was a um, couple living downstairs in our building. We were on the first floor, as I told you. They lived downstairs. They had a little store. Um, a little grocery store, and they lived in the back. Uh, and we heard the father screaming, running up the, the steps and knocking on doors and screaming, 
they were, he had a 17-year-old daughter or a 16-year-old daughter that all these guys were gang raping. And they kicked him out, and there's nothing he could do. I mean, if he was just looking for help, then what could anybody help him? It was probably one of those memories that are the most vivid in my mind, the, the screams of a father in, 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 in agony, and nobody could help him. And that's what it was. Now, a little bit later, we found out that my grandparents were shot by the, there were some, in the village, there were a group of Nazi sympathizers. Now, there are pretty much factual now that we found out that the Germans parachuted uh, just before the war started into all these villages, um, uh, German uh, also what you call members of that Sonderkommando and they were in touch with those people and they went and they basically killed all the Jews now later neighbors came uh, Ukrainian neighbors that were uh, neighbors of my grandparents for all their life came to town and told us that my grandfather was on his was just about going to the uh, where he was, you know, water, we didn't have water, running water, we didn't have running, they didn't have running water, so where he was going to get water from a well, as he was standing there by the well, they shot him, and my grandmother heard that, she came, ran out, they shot her, she fell on top of him, and that's basically what we found out. Now, just as an aside, we, um, I and my wife, we went there about five years later, we found the house, and we I remembered enough to the, find the house and everything else. But the one thing, and we found a few people that were still survivors, old people that I used to know, that I used to play soccer with when we were five, six years old, seven years old in those days. Uh, I could get all the information I wanted except one thing. Where is the mass grave? They killed 330 Jews, where are they? They had to bury him someplace in a mass grave. And that, nobody knew anything. We don't know, we don't know, and I could never find that out. Because I wanted to go and just, you know, put a, make a prayer or put a stone or whatever, I, whatever, but I could never find that out. They were in a neighboring town to where you were? How no, no, were no, they, they were? were about 20 miles away. 20 miles now, away. they did that's what they did in all the villages in northern Romania. Now, were they 30 villages? I don't know, but probably they killed about 10,000 Jews. It, the villages were made, uh, so to speak, Judenrein, which means empty, uh, empty of Jews, in, in, within a couple of days, as soon as the war started. Basically, they did the same job as the Sonderkommandos did in in uh, in Babi Yar or in Poland or whatever, where they did that. Okay, that happened immediately. What they did about a week or two later, they took everybody in the city where we lived and put us into a ghetto and, and sort of in, and we had to leave our apartment with just a few things 
and they herded everybody into a small area and you ended up with 20 people in a room and uh, and immediately after that they started deportations what they did they started taking the um, uh, the, the the Jews from the ghetto and they were put in, take him, just marching him down to the railroad station put him in cattle cars and send him to the Ukraine to labor camps not to death camps they were not yet death camps in 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 41 uh, that came a little bit later so they send him just to working camps labor camps to the to what they call Transnistria, which means on the other side of the Dniester River, and they send them, and the people, the return rate, the, or the rather the death rate, was they're saying was close to sixty, between sixty and seventy percent from from typhoid fever, from uh, pneumonia, from from overwork, from no food, from from. Basically, uh, they uh, they worked you to death. They starved you to death. And uh, now, again, here comes the second miracles. For some reason, uh, a Romanian person they obviously expropriated everything from the Jews. So when they there was still that small textile factory that my father had originally before the war. And the Romanian took possession of it. But he had no idea how to run that. He didn't know even how textile fact machines work. My father was obviously an expert and so forth. So he found us in the ghetto because he needed somebody to run that thing. And he basically told my father, I will give you basically your life and you can stay in town, but you have to work for me. There's no salary, no money, no nothing, no food. You work for me and I'll give you basically so you will not be deported to a labor camp and with your family. And I, and at that time, you needed workers, so he told them that you can pick, I will give you, uh, you can have, I don't remember, I, I know that it was a very difficult thing for my father because he told them you can have 15 people or 25 people that I will protect but you have to do all the work and these people will get nothing I'll just give them their lives so my father you find yourself between picking the closest family or picking people you really need to work so it was a very difficult choosing sort of but and so we lived in Romania, and probably I, I was probably the big breadwinner at the age of ten, because you could not, you are not, you were not allowed. You were wearing a Jewish uh, yellow star, and uh, when you walked out, and my father could go to the factory and from the factory. That's all he was allowed to work, and that was not really that far. Well, I basically was able to go all day long, because. What they needed me, what I went and they hired uh, young kids to go from from building to building. They had courtyards. Most of the buildings in, in Europe, in all, they had like courtyards. And I used to scream, anybody has copper pots? Anybody wants to sell copper pots? Because every, nobody had anything to, uh, you know, they, they needed it for the war effort. 
So when I bought a copper pot and I in for a dollar, they I think the guy that I brought it to gave me a penny or whatever. So I, I that was my big, and so we bought, were able to buy some potatoes. The only thing we it, it, it's really funny, but we were eating potatoes and chocolate, and that's a funny story because we had before the war. My father bought a big. A crate of chocolate because we've, we knew that chocolate doesn't spoil. It, it gets covered white and all that, but it does not spoil chocolate. So we had chocolate that, that we ate in potatoes. I mean, the, we, it, it, it's, it's sort of funny, but that's life. We obviously, so we survived that part of the, um, and my father went to work. Uh, I went to work, and uh, I had a brother that was 10 years, that was just born in 37, so he was just four years old or five years old. And we lived under these conditions while the war was going on and while uh, these people, first you had the Zonderkommandos that killed the 1.2 million Jews and, and other non-desirables, uh, gypsies, uh, Polish priests, Polish uh, a- anybody who was sort of a danger to to Hitler that he could not trust, and uh, the and probably a lot of the um, in the intelligentsia in Poland, the army officers in Poland because anybody who could be of any uh, leadership capability against him and and they of because they started the partisans you know the russians had left over and they were partisans they were fighting against the germans in the back and the back and behind the lines so that is what happened in uh, but then they realized they cannot go ahead with, as I mentioned before, with this kind of uh, killing system. It was just too difficult for everybody. So they had, obviously, that meeting at, in uh, in Germany at the Wannsee, uh, um, I don't know if it was Castle or whatever it was called, where the final solution was resolved. That's where... Uh, um, out of Eichmann, where they came with the conclusion of creating gas chambers and crematoria to where they could kill at a much higher rate and a much less impact on the German soldiers or population and so forth. So they created six death camps. The most notorious and the most famous was Auschwitz-Birkenau. And what they used to do, they used to go to France or Belgium or uh, any other country, take all the Jews, put them in cattle cars, ride them around first for about four or five days, so the in, in heat or freezing weather, and and a lot of the old and young and babies or whatever were died in the train. Then when then they brought them to a uh, to Birkenau or to Auschwitz, and. They opened the train, and they had other Jews that were already there from before. 
they made them go and take out the dead people and take them to the crematoria to get immediately burned. And the others were, were taken out of the train. And that is where that famous selection process started, that uh, Mengele is known, Dr. Mengele, he in, from Auschwitz, that is so known, because basically what he was doing as they brought these people out of the, each train, he was pointing left or right. If he was pointing to the left, the person went to the left. They told him, oh, by the way, we're going to get you cleaned for working. Uh, you, and they, uh, they told him, take off your clothes. We're taking you to the showers. And people didn't know any better. And they went into those showers. And the only thing that came out is not water, but the gas. And uh, it took 15 minutes, and they were all dead. And then they opened the sink, let the gas come out, and then they, they took the Jewish workers to take them and took them to, from the gas chamber to the crematoria and uh, burned them because this was at 2,000 degrees or whatever these uh, were running. And, uh, and then the ashes were, uh, were buried or whatever it is. And if you went to the right, if he pointed you to the right, that means you were still fit enough to be used for labor before before you're going to get killed. So there are stories today which are uh, by by people that are still alive today where a mother, where a woman was uh, actually, uh, it, it just happened, I think it was somebody actually in, here in Phoenix that told the story that... Um, when she was got out of the train in, uh, and one of those Jewish workers that was taking out the dead people from the from the cattle cars told her she had a baby. She had a small baby, but she was a nice, young, healthy-looking woman. He said, give your... And she was... Her mother was also... She, he, he, he told her, give the baby to your mother. Give the baby to your mother. And she didn't understand, why should I give the baby to your mother? But the mother understood and grabbed the baby. And he pointed her to the right. If you had a baby with you, you were going to the left. Because they, they you know, so she, you know, she lost her baby and her mother, but she survived the, the war. Uh, she, she was healthy enough to survive. So, family, just to tell you, my father had four sisters that were married. Three lived in Poland, one lived in Vienna. And I, from what my father tells me, I had 12 cousins from these four uh, families. After the war, the only survivor was one cousin mm -hmm. from all these people. From all my aunts and uncles, they were all nobody uh, survived the war in Poland, or in the the one cousin I actually found after the war. She was part of the Kinder transport in 1939 or 1940. In 1939, just when the war started, they took 3,000. Jewish kids under the age of 18 and send them to London 
that was the only survivors out of Europe from Austria and we knew my father said she must have been somehow we found out after the war that she was on that kinder transport now she was 18 years old so we figured she got to London she was all alone she was 18 she probably tried, got married soon afterwards so in, in London has a very now the war turned after Stalingrad uh, the Germans started to lose the war the Russians came advanced this way and just as we just as we had the Germans the Russians fleeing that way and the Germans coming fast just as fast the Germans were fleeing this way and the Russians came and the Russians came in and when the Russians came in this time they had a basic uh, concept that if you survived the war you probably were allied you did something for the Germans you were allied with the Germans so <laughs> they they went and what they did they took all young people even some of them that came back that just returned from those labor camps, those 30% that survived the labor camp in Transnistria, the Jews. I had a cousin that survived that. He was, I was 17, 16, 17 years old. He was 21 or 22. They grabbed him off the street. They put him on a truck, and they used to send him as cannon father in front of the troops. Uh, so... They didn't even train them or anything to be soldiers or anything. So they sent them into the minefield so they were going in front of the soldiers. So almost very few of those people that they grabbed survived. Now, they used to, the way they used to do, they used to just come and lock up a street from one end to the other with soldiers and grab anybody on the street that is of between the ages, let's say, um, born in 1928 starting in 1928 which means at that time you were in 45 you were um, 17 years old or something like that and they put you on the truck and you were gone and that's probably the end of it of you and I felt I used to wear short shorts and, and look, tried to look like I'm much younger but one, I, I lived in a corner house, and here comes the third miracle, why I believe honestly in faith and in miracles. And here comes the probably the most amazing miracle. I was living in a corner, my house where I live was a corner house. They had closed up one side of the corner. I, my, the entrance to my house was on the other side. So I thought I can sneak in into my house. Just as I was coming close to the door, that Russian soldier at the corner saw me, and he pointed, come here. And I had no choice. I went there, and he put me, and he, the, he, the lieutenant came over, looked at me, and said, get on the truck. And that was it. And I would have been disappeared. But I started screaming. I was at my house. I started screaming, mother, 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 mother. And... A neighbor heard me scream, told my mother. My mother came out on the balcony, which was on the other side. And just before they were putting me on the truck, which was right under the balcony, I said, bring down the passport. And here is the miracle. The, when they gave me that passport that that 
Russian colonel gave us two years, three years earlier, in 1939, when we got that passport, they made a mistake. Instead of saying I was born in 28, they put 1929. They made me a year earlier. And the, the one thing about a, a dictatorship, everybody's afraid of a dictator. When they say you shall take from 1928, nobody will take somebody in 1929. That, that lieutenant was just as afraid to, to take. So they took me off the truck because she ran down with the passport, showed them I'm 1929. They took me off the truck. I would, that, that would have been the end. They took me off the truck. So that is also one of those miracles, how I survived. And after that, they, uh, we were, um, the one thing we knew, we didn't want to go through another uh, Russian being with the communists. We already knew what they are. So we got, at that time, false paper that we are Polish citizens, and we went to Poland and through Czechoslovakia, and, and we went back to Bucharest, which was one of the big mistakes because we went right back. We should have gone west towards uh, towards the west. We want, but the king was still there, so we figured Romania is going to be fine, and we really didn't think how this domination of the of Stalin's power and dominating and they taking the wood. At that point Roosevelt and Stalin divided up Europe and he gave and Roosevelt gave Stalin uh, you know the had the sphere of uh, influence all the way Poland uh, Romania, Hungary and all that and that was all the, the, on the Russian uh, and Czechoslovakia the Eastern Europe basically up to Austria. So we we got these papers and we got back to Romania and when I uh, once we were there suddenly the king was kicked out the communists took over Romania and we were back into the same pickle where we had where we went all around to uh, and while let me tell you that going around was not uh, very easy because we lived in towns in in Poland in bombed out towns living in without windows without running water without I used to go to another town once a week or once every two weeks to a bathhouse to take a bath because there was no running water or anything so I mean but to go back so we applied for a visa to go west to go to if I remember the, from the consulate from Venezuela we were going we got papers to go whatever so the one thing again it's very different when you're in a dictatorship when they give you a visa you you got 24 hours to go you can't say well I'm going to go later I'm going to that visa is it expires very fast so my parents got a visa my mother my father an uncle a brother that means a brother of my mother's and my youngest brother got the visa I didn't because I was of army age so they had no choice but to leave me alone. I was left alone for about six months. And meanwhile, my father had given that uh, Romanian communist, uh, and uh, another told him, if you give my son, he, I had a diamond that he left me that he had 
from a ring from my mother or something or earrings. I don't remember exactly what it was, but he left me. He said, when you give him the visa, he will give you those diamonds. And about six months later, I got the visa and I went. And let me tell you, it was so the scariest thing because as you went, went through through the border, there were Russian soldiers. They could take you off any time. The only time you really uh, were free when you crossed the border into the American zone in, in, uh, in Austria. Serge eventually made it to the United States, where he became a citizen and received a college degree. He continues to share his story with many groups near his home in Phoenix.